Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now we center on Iran as well, and we do that with Daniel Tannenbaum of PwC, who is outstanding on what nobody wants to talk about, including, I might point out, the president, which is actually, how do you do sanctions? Let's start with first principles. What do you actually do on sanctions? Like Mr. Mnuchin comes up with a 20-page document. How's it work? I think you got to separate what the rhetoric out of the administration is versus the reality. What's this, the reality? Well, the reality, in some instances of the sanctions that have come out, they have been focused and targeted on certain industries and sectors and really sought to achieve an objective, which is to force a change in behavior, to seize assets of bad people. At times, we get that conflated with creating very lengthy lists of people who don't really have assets in the U.S., who don't travel to the U.S., And thus, it gives the appearance of doing something without doing something. But is it a document out of Treasury? Is it a document out of a congressman that runs a committee? So it's typically the policy element of sanctions is driven out of the administration through state and the White House. Through the state. Through the State Department. But the real nuts and bolts, the execution, the operationalization of sanctions comes through Treasury. You're actually seeing a bit of a, a power struggle play out in public because a number of things are talked about now by the State Department around enforcement and criminal prosecution. None of these things that agency has any remit over, actually. Who does? The Treasury Department, the Justice Department. Over enforcement. Over enforcement. So the question I have... Just, I'm, I'm just, more confused than yeah. we started speaking to Mr. Tannenbaum. <laughs> well, I'm going to go real simple here. Let's start just with Iran. My understanding was we had already, the U.S. government had already put sanctions on pretty much everything that mattered. What's... What's left, I guess? There's there's not a lot left. Um, now, what could be left and what could be significant if we get to the major announcement is there's a concept called secondary sanctions, and secondary sanctions force a choice to foreign companies to choose between doing business with the U.S. and doing business with Iran, but not both. Those powers were put in place in the Obama administration, used twice, but essentially you can pick a country in any country, a company in any country in the world and ban them from doing business in the U.S. if you believe, if the U.S. believes, that they've been trading with Iran. Do you know the companies that the Obama administration went after? They were two smaller um, entities in Asia, uh, banking entities, that were found to be trading with Iran, supporting Iran through a financing standpoint. They didn't go after, like, Siemens of Germany or, you know, not BNP That is the thing. They're not going after any significant entities. And even earlier in the Trump administration, there was a small Chinese bank on the border with North Korea that was designated under a different type of authority. Very small bank, but the administration took a victory lap for being tough on Chinese banks even though no one had really heard of the bank that they designated in the first place. So, Daniel, as you go about your business talking to boards and C-suite executives, what are are executives doing in a context of are sanctions on? Are they are they not not on? Is it Iran or is it China? It, it's more agnostic than that. It's looking at all of the different areas where sanctions have been imposed, 
where are we exposed? If your customers' customers do business with some of these countries or companies in Iran or, or in targeted areas, you can be held liable. So it's really trying to assess, are we exposed anywhere in our company? Because we could be right. a massive global company, not directly do business with Iran, but indirectly through some of our customers, we could end up being uh, caught to facilitate trade with Iran, which could put us in the penalty box with the U.S. And then how do the other countries react? The United Kingdom with all their distractions, Germany with their distractions, and particularly France with a heritage to Persia. We're very unpopular on this right now. I mean, the Iran deal... Well, do deal, they just say, no, we're not going to do it? Or how that, does that That's work? a bit of the problem. The Iran deal that was put in place in the Obama administration was the permanent five members of the UN Security Council that came together to form that deal with Iran. You now are seeing a unilateral approach to Iran in the way the U.S. is acting. And actually, there is an EU-led mechanism called INSTEX that was designed to provide financing for Iran-related trade, permissible Iran-related trade. Is that Even humanitarian ICE, stuff? It's all humanitarian. Okay. The State Department over the last few weeks has begun threatening that SPV with sanctions because it could be used to circumvent um, U.S. sanctions, which really isn't the point. So there is a bit of a, a struggle right now to try and suss out any activity with Iran. The Europeans have been light in challenging the U.S. on this. I think the one wild card to me with this being G20 mm -hmm. week is China. China still is trading significantly with Iran, and reports came out yesterday that their trading volumes have only gone down about $100 million in the month of May to about $900 million in trade well, with Iran. To be clear, if we do new sanctions or enforce the present sanctions, are they the kind of materials and goods where China or another country just make up the dollar one 800 Tehran and say, let's fix this now? Well, so China and Iran are still trading. That's still happening. Um, the U.S. knows this, but is the U.S. willing to risk another dispute with China because of their support of Iran? I, I don't think that's really the case. They may pick a softer target within China to take credit for being hard on China. But I, I think right now the, the question of these major sanctions that were talked about on Friday or that said they were released on Friday, that yesterday now they're coming on Monday, it, it really is hard to tell what's major, but they're going to make a much bigger deal most likely out of whatever it is than in reality. How effective have the sanctions been on Iran? How tough has it been? So, look, Iran is used to being isolated. They're very good at being isolated. For the last 40 or so years... Right. They've been isolated from most of the Western economies. How much of an impact has it made? There's clearly been an attempt by the Trump administration to force the hardliners back in power from the moderates to justify the creation of a more legitimate enemy worthy of some of the rhetoric we've seen over the last few days, you know, vis-a-vis -vis cocked and loaded. Right. So you know, the sanctions really, if you're trying to bring someone to the negotiating table right. and you're pulling out of a deal that a number of parties yeah, negotiated yeah. and that no one has violated. Okay. How do you trust any you, you of this? Right. Have you ever used in all your work as a, as, a, as a public employee of the United States of America, your different efforts, Travelux, now with PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, did you ever use the phrase locked and loaded? Cocked and loaded. <laughs> or cocked and loaded? No, I have not used You've the not phrase used those I have not, I have not used original. the phrase that's I've it. used other colorful <clears throat> rhetoric in the government, but not quite that flowery. Very so. good, Ted Tannenbaum. Thank you so much. Always locked and loaded for a great discussion.
Tom, we often talk about uh, geopolitics and how and the impact on the market, and that's certainly a big issue. This is going to be a big issue this week as the G20 meets uh, later this week. It's always a big issue for economics and the markets, but now with the uh, trade tensions between China and the U.S. even more so. Uh, we're very fortunate to have our next guest to help us kind of parse through this. Mary Lovely is a Peterson Institute senior fellow, uh, Syracuse University professor as well. She joins us on the phone from Syracuse. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we do have the G20 later this week. Uh, it appears that uh, Presidents Trump and Xi will meet on the sidelines. Should we? Is it best if we just keep our expectations low here? <laughs> Good morning. We're going to have a lot of spectator sports this week, aren't we? Um, well, it's pretty hard to do. I think all of us are ready for an end to this, to move on to more productive types of engagement between the two countries. So I think it's pretty hard to have our, our keep our expectations in check this week. So what do you think China wants here? I mean, they're going to have an opportunity here to maybe move this discussion forward. Uh, what do you think China really wants at this stage? Well, China has all along wanted to seek some kind of negotiated end to this. Uh, and they also are, need to uh, keep their um, head high. That is, they can't be seen as uh, kowtowing to President Trump. So that's become more and more difficult as the threats have ratched, ratcheted up. Now, with this meeting here between the two leaders, there is a possibility that something can be done. Uh, we saw hope of progress uh, each time they've met. Of course, uh, unfortunately, that hasn't led to anything except escalating tariffs. So um, we're going to hope for the best this week and um, hope that the magic of the two men meeting can bring us uh, a little further along on this. Otherwise, we're looking at some pretty... Uh, it's a pretty tough ride moving forward. How do you extrapolate forward? And this is my lead question for uh, Dr. Navarro, uh, Professor Lovely here in 40 minutes. Iran, we blinked. ICE, we blinked. If I say to you the president will blink with G at G20, what does that actually mean? Do we know what blink means? Okay, I would add Mexico, we blink. Excuse me. I'm I, sorry. I, I, she, she's like efforting me forward to Navarro. <laughs> Mexico, we blinked. So what, what does blink mean at the G20, Mary? Well, you know, he could easily go back to things that were on the table months ago before there was so much uncertainty and angst driven to, you know, American businessmen and women's hearts through this. He could go back to a package where we have significant purchases by the Chinese, you know, maybe not even more than we would have ended up with, but certainly more than we have now. Um, he can look at some sort of shallow reforms, which I think is probably uh, what's due, given the length of these negotiations, which, you know, by the standard of international trade agreements have not been very long. Uh, and he could perhaps look back at some other types of reforms that she was willing to make. But I think most of these things would have been on the table in the past. So I think that would be, uh, in some sense, viewed as a blink by many folks. In fact, I think part of President Trump's problem is that it's hard for him to get a win here now. If he does reach an agreement, people right. will claim it's a blink. And if he doesn't, we're going to see the impact on American businesses and American consumers. So it's it's a little it's a very fraught uh, week for right. him. I think. Does the Hong Kong protests and all the dynamics of the past 14 days does that affect 
Mr. Xi's options? Well, it certainly makes um, it harder for him in some ways also because, you know, we see that there is, at least within Hong Kong, a very deep well uh, of uh, resentment almost of the increasing authoritarianism in the mainland. And if the economy slows even more, it's going to make it much more difficult for Xi moving forward, not just in on the political sphere, but also on the economic sphere, because people's, you know, sense of well-being, their morale is an important measure of how the economy will do. So, Mary, as President Trump sits down with President Xi, what do you think President Trump will view as a win or as a successful Friday-Saturday coming up? Wow, well, I've learned it's never never wise to predict what, what President Trump thinks. However, um, clearly, well, you know, I, I would say from a, in an ordinary sense, we would expect a win to be something that results in, uh, you know, greater purchases for U.S. agricultural exporters, uh, greater freedom for American service providers, particularly business service providers in China, um, and perhaps uh, liberalization on some tariffs certainly some liberalization in terms of FDI caps or ownership caps, but, you know, that's sort of normal. We're looking at politics here, so he may be looking for some gigantic uh, sign that he has won, that he has somehow uh, brought the Chinese to the table in a way that no one else could, and I think that's where the danger lies because that's what the Chinese are not going to want to give him. Mary Lovely, thank you uh, so much. Greatly appreciate it with the Peterson Institute and, of course, with Syracuse. Uh, University. The interview of the day, Paul Sweeney and Tom Keene with us, Peter Kent Navarro, the Emeritus Professor, University of California at Irvine, and certainly within the White House, uh, the President's chief uh, guider on our discussion with China, our discussion on trade and manufacturing uh, policy. Professor Navarro, you have been a good friend of the show. We've always gone for many different opinions. I want to begin with a moment we're in right now. After Iran and delay, after Mexico and delay, after ICE and delay over the weekend, why should my listeners worldwide think of anything except out of G20, further delay with China? (laughs) Well, that's a great setup there. Um, Look, uh, we're in the glide path now to Osaka. Well, the talks will resume. Uh, going into that. Let's see what happens. What the president has said was we'll either get a great and fair deal or we won't. I think what's important for your listeners to understand is what we're fighting for and what we're fighting about. There's basically seven problems structurally that we face with China. It's the cyber intrusions into our business networks, right? forced technology transfer as a condition of market access, mm-hmm. uh, totally illegal under the WTO. We lose a couple of hundred billion dollars a year alone in intellectual property theft. There's an ongoing problem with dumping of product, uh, huge overcapacity in steel and aluminum in uh, China, growing overcapacity <clears throat> right. in autos, robotics. Uh, number five, um, we've got the history of currency manipulation. Number six, 
It's the state-owned enterprises, which are basically the tip of the Chinese mercantilist spear. Right. And, of course, the fentanyl issue. So these are the discussions we're having, Tom. And as you know, we had a 150-page-plus agreement um, that we worked literally for over a year on. And the Chinese... Okay, I want to go to the immediately, Professor Navarro. You talk about a mercantilist China. Are we going after a mercantilist China by becoming a mercantilist America? No, I think uh, I think what's important uh, for your listeners to get the big picture on is this: uh, we are in an international trading system where uh, the United States faces uh, significantly higher tariffs around the world. Under the World Trade Organization, I don't know if you know this, Tom, but under the Most Favored Nation rules of the World Trade Organization, it's perfectly legitimate for countries uh, to charge the United States significantly higher tariffs than on the products that we charge them. And it's endemic. Uh, And what that does, really, this unreciprocal trade, it creates a large trade deficit over half a billion. I think it's like almost Uh, a trillion dollars a year we're approaching. But my point is this, is like you're asking me about mercantilism, whatever. We, We have the lowest tariffs, the lowest trade barriers in the world. And as the president has said, we're being treated like a piggy bank. Okay, so I want to, do, I, I, Peter, is, I want to get to up. where we are right now. I don't need a rehash of what we've done for the last two years on trade. You wrote about most favored nation status in the Wall Street Journal a number of months ago, summer of last year. Your colleague, Emeritus Professor Suarez Vila at Irvine, wrote a scathing note, and he really got to the heart of the matter, which is the game theory of the moment. Professor Suarez Vila talked about a global trading system that can impose countermeasures. Is China imposing countermeasures on what they perceive as the trade war you and President Trump are beginning? Tom, I, I don't want to really speculate on what China does or doesn't do. What, what we see is a chessboard here uh, where the, a, a big thing that we need to do this summer is pass the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. That, that for us, is is uh, high on the priority list because if we do that, we'll create half a million jobs. We'll get another point of GDP. We'll create 75,000 jobs in the auto sector. And that's that's something that Congress can do uh, within a matter of months. Can you do that by linking? Okay, great. So that's and, what we focus yeah, on. I mean, I understand you want to talk but about Peter China, is but, no – okay, but Peter, to be fair to you – You are not conflating trade policy with immigration policy. Can we get a successful new NAFTA, even as the president conflates that policy with immigration? Absolutely. I I think that uh, the the recent uh, use of tariffs uh, to get Mexico to significantly tighten their border security has brought these, these nations closer to each other. We're working very well now uh, with Mexico, uh, and I, I think that that was an important uh, thing. Remember, that the tariffs have many different uses. In that case, uh, they were used to address a national security crisis, and when the president announced that, people right. went crazy, and well. then two days later, they hailed it uh, as a great victory, and that's what it is. So um, I think 
I think that uh, from an investor's point of view, uh, the important thing to see is that the U.S. economy is rock solid. Uh, all of financial indicators uh, are pointing bullish. And the tariff policies that we're no, using right. so, Dr. are working in different ways to help our economy and help re right. re structure the international trade environment in a way which is more fair and therefore more expansive and, and so and but as it relates dr navarro as it relates to tariffs what do you believe has been the impact on u.s consumers and u.s businesses zero and that's that's shown in the data and that's that's counterintuitive i mean there were a lot of people who were uh, saying that we were going to have tremendous price inflation from from all of the tariffs we put in, whether it was aluminum and steel or whether it was China. We've seen zero. Now, in the case of China, it's very clear what's happened. Uh, they devalued their currency to take the bite out of the tariffs. They've lowered their prices. We've seen them bearing the burden of the tariffs through lower exports, lower profits. The Chinese government uh, itself um, is is bearing that burden. Are, are those, Dr. Navarro, are those tariffs, costs. are those... Consumers are paying nothing. No, there's no, you can't point to any inflation in this economy, which is why the other, the other piece out there, Tom, as you know, uh, is the Federal Reserve. I mean, a, a rate cut and passage of USMCA would get us easily over 30 Well, the president just down. tweeted out that we would see 4 or 5%. I believe he assumes real GDP, and I can't find many people that would agree with that. Dr. Navarro, of, of, of so critical moment here with G20, is the bluster and policy that we've been doing, and as someone mentioned brilliantly over the weekend, maybe it's talk loud and carry a small stick. What kind of stick does the president take to the G20 meeting? Uh, Tom, as I said at the outset, we're on the glide path going in. Let's just see what happens. I, I think that uh, the important thing here, if you're an investor, is just to see the chessboard. You got a strong economy, uh, and that will continue, and that's bullish for the markets. That's all that matters. We've had the tariffs in for over a year, Tom, and we've seen no negative impacts whatsoever on the U.S. economy. In fact, the Q1 2019, uh, we actually uh, we, we came in a little over 3% growth rate, and a full point of that was due uh, to our reduction in the trade deficit, primarily because of the China tariffs. So let's not let's not. I, I, I think if people want to get excited about uh, things right now, they should get excited about passing the USMCA agreement because that's going to be the next leg up on our growth. They should get excited about the idea that the Fed might lower interest rates as they should. Uh, and and let's let's just see what happens with China. We so, get a so Dr. Deal or we won't. What what would the administration consider a successful G20 meeting as it relates to China? Uh, I can't speculate on that. Let's just see what happens. I, I, we're, this is the quiet period. Let's just go into Osaka. Let's see what happens. I'm happy to talk about other things, but let's just let's just see what happens. Are, are, is, is multilateral dead, sir? I mean, with all the books you've written, the anger over China over the years, is a multilateral America dead? The U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement is multilateral. It's three countries. Um, in, I think, the smartest, biggest trade deal in world history. 
and it's good for all three countries as well as American farmers, ranchers, manufacturers, and workers. So in that sense, multilateralism um, isn't dead at all. Mm. And, and so, no, um, if you have multilateral trans-Pacific partnership, which is which would have torn apart our auto industry, that's dead. <laughs> but USMCA is uh, hopefully it'll be alive and well and, and last for a long time. Peter Navarro, thank you so much. She is assistant to the president, director of trade and manufacturing uh, policy at the White House. And we greatly appreciate his time. Last week, we were honored to speak with General McChrystal, Admiral Stravitas, and we continue that forward now with another Admiral. He is Admiral Sestak of Pennsylvania, but he's different than McChrystal. He's different than Stravitas. He's decided to run for president. He is the 25th, I believe, by count candidate uh, for a very crowded Democratic Party field. Uh, Admiral, we are thrilled to have you with us. As a former congressman, you uh, know the landscape well. Why do the Democrats need a 25th candidate to gum up the process of defeating President Trump? Hey, thanks for having me aboard. Look, I, I honestly do believe what Americans most want is someone who is actually accountable to them, to them, above self, above party, above any special interest. That's what they most want. Look, they're looking for a president, I also believe, or they need a president who has a depth of global experience to restore America's leadership in the world. And that's what protects our American dream at home. And we're walking away from the world. We're retreating from the world and telling right. our bruised allies left behind. <clears throat> it's a wrap. And finally, I think they really do need someone who can be trusted, as I was in my two-to-one almost Republican district, reelected without spending a dime on a campaign who's re- that would be trusted even when we disagree to restructure right. policies that are too often inequitable. That's what they want. Admiral Sest- I really want to be there for accountability. Okay, we all know Connor Lamb and what he did southwest of Pittsburgh as well. How are you going to get liberals, progressives, social democrats, democratic socialists to swing over to a moderate Scoop Jackson Democrat like you? How does that work? Well, you know, uh, you hit it on the head. I want to actually represent all Americans, all Americans. And so when I, someone, when I was a congressman, disagreed with me on choice, I invited them in, despite the harsh letters that were often written, uh, written on that issue. And you had to care. You had to be in at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, and 60 showed up to voice their opinion. But you can't find me ever going back to them in a harsh terms, but listening and saying what my opinion is. The next time 40 showed up, the next time 20, the Tea Party Patriots asked after my 10th town, car- town hall to have a picture with me. What I'm going to do it is what a good captain does on a ship. He goes down to the mess decks and listens and talks, but he states what he believes right. in. Am I going to do it by spending my time living in Iowa? Sure I am. Just like I walked 422 miles across Pennsylvania. Yeah, I did that this weekend. That's, yeah, but we're not impressed by that. I walked 422 miles this weekend. Let me bring in my colleague, Paul Sweeney. Did you really? With Joseph, yeah, please. And I got a bridge for sale in Arizona. Let me bring in my colleague, Paul Sweeney, uh, right now with Joe Sestek, presidential candidate. So, Admiral, just a question, first of all, just on, on timing here. It is a, a very crowded field, as we all know. Uh, 
are you concerned that you're coming in too late here? I mean, even the debates are, are starting. So first is just, are we too little yeah. too late here? Uh, Paul, you play with the cards you're dealt with. I had my daughter who had brain cancer at four, which is where I stopped being an independent to take and took. And after she was recovered, became a Democrat to run in health care, which is uh, I similarly, the cancer came back. And over the last year, we dealt with it. And frankly, I got dealt a good set of cards because her health care doctors who saved her last time, one came out of retirement to the brain operation. We're now in a safe harbor. And so it's a good deck that card. She's safe. And so this is only time I could get in. But you know what? She gave me a sign that said, life is not about avoiding the storm. It's about learning to dance in the rain. And so, yeah, it's a little tougher right now. But, you know, the message I have, having stood up at times to my own party in that walk across Pennsylvania where I was told to stop walking, just fundraise. But I told the man who called me, the senator, about the Republican who called out as I walked through a small town, Admiral, I'm a Republican, but I love what you're doing, that I actually want to go to the people. And actually, and I mean this, not that they have to know me, that I have to show them I know them and what they need. And so, no, I think it's okay because of what happened to my daughter, that I'm very fortunate with deck of cards I'm dealt with with her. Right. Well, good, good news there. Admiral, um, what I mean, obviously one of the key issues that has to be done initially by all candidates is to try to differentiate themselves. How do you do that? Well, I think I bring something just because I've been blessed by this nation to invest in me. That's fairly unique. You actually have a presidential candidate who has a breadth and depth of understanding of the world, who's come to understand issues of our military. That militaries can stop a problem, but they can never fix a problem. And so Democrats and Republicans alike have voted for that reckless war, for example, in Iraq. Never understood either the complexity of the world, nor did they understand the issue that I said. And so we unleash Shia against Sunni, Sunni against Shia, and here's the issue. Very few understand that. And second, no one has ever been willing to be held accountable for voting for that war. So I bring accountability, which is unique. And I bring a breath of understanding right. why our American dream is only protected by restoring leadership to the world. Joe Sestek with us, the Democrat of Pennsylvania. He is running for president. He is a former uh, admiral of the U.S. Navy. Admiral Sestek, you commanded the Samuel B. Roberts to uh, all yeah. sorts of acclaim uh, floating around the Atlantic. You did that with a repaired Samuel B. Roberts, which I believe was hit by a mine five or six yes. years before off of Iran. Yes, you know about yes, what our Navy's at risk in Iran right now. Stravitas was scathing in his interview with us last week. Describe as a Navy guy what the president did last week with the, um, not hysterics, but the uh, sequence of events on Iran. Well, let me talk to that directly with the beginning of the wrong action in that sequence. Breaking America's word on the deal of the Iranian nuclear accord when Iran kept theirs is unforgivable. And that's why we're here today. Look, step back. Our Navy can't even survive in the Persian Gulf. We, our sonar doesn't work, and there's 19 mini-submarines there. We operate in two areas there. We, the carry battle group, go back and forth, back and forth to launch plans. So if we have to strike, I know I've been there, we will have to remove ourselves from the Persian Gulf and do strikes from afar. And this is not Iraq. 
It would take us weeks or months if we ever have them get their nuclear infrastructure back, buried under 300 feet of rock to destroy it as they could rain missiles, hundreds of them down on Israel and our regional bases. Remember what I said about Iraq. Militaries can solve right. the problem. Militaries don't fix it. Our diplomatic effort to rid them for a year at the most, at the minimum, of a nuclear capability gave America security and safety. And what the administration did by walking away and breaking our word is Admiral, for our security. How much does this nation miss General Mattis at Pentagon? Yeah. <laughs> General Mattis, who I worked for when I ran the Navy's $350 billion warfare uh, programs, and he was the Marine equivalent. We were fortunate to have that man. That's accountable. And his words of wisdom there, where he also spoke about staying in the Iranian Accord, mm-hmm. was sorely missed. And we should be great, grateful well, for his service. And if I could, I'm sorry. Please. Well, we're going to run out of time. Let's do this, uh, Admiral Sistek. We look forward to speaking to you in our New York studios or in Washington, as you may, uh, in the coming weeks. Joe Sestak is from Pennsylvania. He has decided as a former congressman today to run for president of the United States. We greatly appreciate his time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.